Okay, so the idea of today is to tell you a little bit about the about the nationality reduction and the applications it has to neuroscience. I would like to ask first who of you have heard about uh, what is dimensionality reduction? <coughs> so, most of you. Nevertheless, I, I will start with some basic things and then we will go a bit more technical uh, to the end. So, I hope everybody can benefit uh, a little bit. So, the motivation to speak today about dimensionality reduction in a computational neuroscience seminar, and we are not in a machine learning course, or we are not in a data mining course, so why will we speak about dimensionality reduction? Um, the idea is the following. If you really ask any experimental neuroscientist well, what is his dream or her dream uh, regarding science, uh, I bet that many of them would answer uh, that they would like to record uh, every neuron, every spike from every neuron in the brain of a behaving organ. And there are uh, very, very similar uh, dreams by people right now who work in neuroscience. One of it is also to try to record all possible connections between neurons, this thing called the connector. And if you've heard about this human brain project that received 1,000 million euros for 10 years, uh, what it's promising is to do a simulation with a very good connectome, running models of every neuron in order to try to see how every spike flows in that huge network. Okay. So this is the dream of current experimental neuroscience, to have this information. Uh, many people, many experimentalists, believe that after they have this information, they will be able to tell you why an animal behaves the way it does. Okay? And predict what it will do, and how it will feel, absolutely everything. And certainly we slowly are getting there. Uh, right now, if you, I don't know how long you will have to wait to properly install this thing. It gets 20 minutes only, I know. It's really? It is dense? Yeah. EG. Okay. So in 20 minutes you have this uh, dense array EG with more than 256 channels, okay? And you can also have fMRI, maybe Martin can tell us how many voxels are more or less in one data set. It's about uh, 150,000. Okay, yeah. yeah. So we are accumulating huge data sets in neuroscience, okay? And every time and every time we are getting more and more data, sampling more and more fine in both space and time scale, okay? Uh, also now, uh, regarding single neurons, how many single neurons we can record simultaneously, we're approaching already the 1,000 neurons. Okay? So we can really put electrodes into an animal and record more than 1,000 neurons simultaneously. Okay? And uh, Pascal Fries in Frankfurt is also going to introduce some uh, electrodes in the brain of behaving monkeys that we will have a huge spatial coverage and we will have more than 1,500 electrodes. So we are really getting into more and more uh, the realization of the dream of experimental neuroscience. But what is the dream of the experimental neuroscientists is the nightmare of the people who have to analyze the data, right? Uh, many times I have seen the following. Uh, some experimental neuroscientists being very proud of how many channels this recording device has, this, this MEG uh, device has, more than 300 channels, just, for, just to see how after he has recorded the data, she has recorded the data, tries to get rid of as many channels as, as he can. <laughs> so you see really this paradox many times, try to record as much, and later on try to remove as many channels as you can. And the reason is because it's, it's not easy when you have many, many simultaneously recorded channels. These are easy channels, this is time, and this is different channels, how they fluctuate the voltage over time. 
Because if I would tell you, for example, that, okay, uh, there is some interesting behavior of the animal going on while recording this, how would you start exploring such a high dimensional data set? One of the first things that we do is make some assumptions. For example, one can think, okay, maybe I can average some of the channels because they look very similar, and maybe they are only just small variations. Okay, so averaging is one of the things that we do in order to get lots of data, right? But if you want a bit more uh, refined analysis, maybe you will start looking at individual channels, what they do over time. Or you will start looking, look, does channel one and channel three are correlated? Or if channel one and channel five are correlated with also some other channels? So you will start going from single or univariate analysis, just looking at each individual channel once at a time. You will start looking at pairs of channels. At some point, you might start looking at triples of channels just simultaneously to see what they do. And this, of course, the number of comparisons you can do grows and grows and grows exponentially. Right? So it would be very interesting to find a way in order uh, to try to capture or explore this data in a principled way, in a unified way, without the need of looking one by one at all possible conventions of, of channels. So this talk at the end is about when less is more, in some sense. So uh, we will divide the talk in a little bit of what is dimensionality reduction. Later on, we'll explain who really needs this uh, set of tools. I will explain a little bit about the whole diversity of dimensionality reduction techniques that are out there. And at the end, I will speak about some possible applications for neuroscience. So what is dimensionality reduction? Dimensionality reduction is nothing else than a map from your high-dimensional data to some low-dimensional data. But of course, we cannot go from here to here in any way that we want. We want to preserve some properties of the data. Okay? And depending on which properties of the data we are going to preserve, we have different dimensionality reduction techniques. And the idea is at the end, dimensionality reduction will be very useful for visualization of display of your data or processing. In order to start speaking about dimensionality reduction, we need to speak about what is high-dimensional data. Right? So here the keyword is dimension. What is dimension? Uh, there are many different types of dimension in different mathematical fields. But informally, uh, what we call a strings in dimension of a space is the number of parameters, or if you want to call it variables, or features, or coordinates, that one uses to specify or describe an object within that space. Okay? If we would be speaking about uh, spatial dimensions, then a line, of course, has dimension one, a plane has dimension two, and up to describe one point inside a three-dimensional space, of course, we need three dimensions. Inside a cube, we need three dimensions, right? So for us, informally, it's just the number of coordinates, of features, of parameters that we need to describe univocally one point in that space. And that is called the stringsing. Stringsing. Dimension. And we are surrounded, of course, by a world of high-dimensional data, right? Uh, for instance, in an, in an image, the strings and dimension of the image that we would denote by big D. Uh, if the image is colored with some RGB code, then it would be the number of pixels by three. Okay, and this is the strings and dimension of one image. Okay, but this thing goes, of course, very easily, very high, right? If we have a 256 by 256 pixel image we already end up with a dimension close to 200,000. By the way, interrupt me at any time if you have any question, any doubt, something that you want to debate or discuss, or 
if instead of an image, I would give you a text, what would be the dimension of that text, for example, according to some uh, way to describe it? You have some dictionary examples. One character, as key code of this character. For example, or you can have also words. That depends how you uh, really code your data, right? But if you have words, you can, in a document, you can count how many times this word appears. And basically, the dimensionality of your data would be the number of words in the dictionary. Okay? And then you describe that thing by an histogram. You say, okay, this word appears several times, and this word appeared two times, and this word never appeared. So you have a huge vector as long with as many components as words in your dictionary. Then you are already performing dimensionality reduction because you are omitting the locational relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's just one way to describe your document. Mm -hmm. So the point here is that in general, the data we deal with is extrinsically very high dimension. What about neuronal data? What happens when we record neuronal data? So what is that extrinsic dimension in that case? Well, Kind of easy. If we have a set of EEG channels, extrinsic dimension of my data set would be just the number of channels. If somebody gives me data that has the spiking times of three neurons, for example, the extrinsic dimension of this data set would be just the number of neurons I'm recording. And if somebody gives me some region of interest in some fMRI data, the extrinsic dimension is just the number of boxes. Because each boxer here can have some level of activation. So the number of parameters that I need to describe this fMRI region of interest is just the number of boxes contained within it. Okay. That's clear, right? So now let's have some geometric view of uh, these data sets. So if I give you a set of images, here I was listening, I put all the same images, but imagine they are different. Then a set of images, because of what I said before, actually can be thought as a set of vectors or points in this d-dimensional space, right? For this case of images, instead of three axes, I should plot actually a space with these 200,000 axes, right? But they really say. So a set of images is a set of vectors. And then the translation is very simple. One sample or one instance of your data set is one point or a vector in a d-dimensional space. And a full data set would be nothing else than a cloud of points in that data. What about neuronal data? In general, it's quite the same. The only thing is that in neuronal data, in many cases, we actually collect one point every time that we sample our neural tissue. So in neural recordings, actually, we just wait. We obtain more, more samples. We don't have to do much. Just wait. So in this case, for example, if I record the activity of three different neurons, okay, I can consider at each point in time, this is time, this is activation of neuron one, this time this is activation of neuron two, this time this is activation of neuron three. At every point in time, okay, I will have my neuronal set described as one point in one, two, three dimensions. So this would be the first point. This would be the second point in time, the third point in time. But this cloud lives in a three-dimensional space. The thing is that to describe neuronal dynamics, I have a cloud of points, but this time each point is indexed by its time stamp. Okay? So the only thing 
special on neuronal dynamics. The time is there is just this each point receives some label with its time index, and therefore we talk about neuronal trajectory. Okay, it's not only a cutoff point; it's a cutoff point with some ordering. Somehow similar that we want to do in mind, actually. Yeah, with this PCA thing, for example, uh, you have uh, a cutoff point, but this cutoff point has some ordering or sequence. Mm -hmm. But still, PCA is a dimensional relation technique. This is just uh, the raw space of it. So, what is the problem with high dimensional data? Well, probably most of you have heard, or some of you have heard about the course of dimensionality. How many of you have heard? So the course of dimensionality simply says that the sample size that you need to estimate a function of several variables grows exponentially with the number of variables, in this case, with a stringent dimension. So if you need to, for instance, information theory, very typically you have to estimate some probability densities. Uh, if you need to estimate the probability densities, for instance, in two dimensions, you need to put points here and count how many points fall in each of these sets. If you want a certain fraction of these cells to be covered, you will need a number of points. The thing is that if you go to 3D, the growth of the number of points that you need in order to have the same density in these cells grows exponentially. So it's as simple as saying that if you want to basically cover these grids with points, the number of points that you need to have the same density grows exponentially. And very easily you run out of samples you have uh, very sparse population space. And this leads to very huge problems in estimating probability densities or any other methods you might be interested in. For example, if you're interested in performing some non-parametric regression, this, by the way, I think is related to the Hopkins Hopkins uh, inequality. But in any case, if you're interested in performing with your data some non-parametric regression, you just want to fit some function to your data, for which you don't have uh, an explicit formula, the rate of convergence actually scales with this, where m is the sample number of points that you have, the sample size, t is the differentiability of the regression function, and d is the number of variables, or again, the stress dimensionality. So the thing is that if you fix, for example, that your function has to be twice differentiable, the function that you try to fit to your data, if you work in 10 dimensions to get a certain accuracy or convergence, uh, in 10 dimensions, you need, for example, 10,000 points. The same thing, if you just double the dimension, you might need 10 million. Clearly, in many cases, you don't have so much data. So we really need to do something with this D to make it small. Otherwise, the problem is not feasible. Or, I mean, at the end, I mean, this algorithm run computationally, right? But what you obtain is just plainly stupid results. Uh, Again, in high-dimensional data, another phenomena uh, also related with the, the former one has to do with something called computational dimension. Is that uh, in high-dimensional spaces, uh, there is this phenomena called empty space phenomenon. So most of the space is actually empty and actually accumulates on the borders of your region of interest. Uh, for example, here if you compute how much area two-dimensional sphere of this occupies, a fraction of the area by the unit cube is uh, 0.78. If you go to three dimensions, there's the same thing. You expand both the cube in three dimensions and the sphere in three dimensions. Then actually the sphere occupies only half of the volume. And when you go already to dimension eight, 
your sphere contains nothing of your hypercube. This means that actually the mass of the measure is really concentrated in, on the boundaries, and inside there is almost nothing. And the center is almost nothing. This one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I understand um, from the P mm -hmm. and D, you calculate M. If you want to fix the, the rate of convergence, it's some sort of tolerance, more or less. Okay, what is the rate of the convergence? Like? Technically, it's a sequence that is indexed by the sample so size and tells you. Yeah, yeah. It tells you, you can think about, think of even, it's the same thing. Any, any reason well, yeah, um, but you might think of it if it's some way of tolerance, somehow, the error you're making. Think about in those terms. So you fix this thing, okay, and then you fix P and you fix D, and then you isolate which M do I need to have a certain fixed value for D. Okay, okay. And you so fix that. maybe this formula is missing that equals the. Yeah, you can say equal to some certain constant number. Okay, okay. if you fix a certain predefined level of tolerance, which is all these equal some constant number, then if you fix P and D, you can isolate for which M you have to have. Okay, so basically we have that on dimension eight on our sphere in the center contains nothing. Related to this, uh, actually all of these are different versions of something called concentration of measure, that is a phenomenon that occurs in high dimensions. Is the, the fact that if, for example, you, you have a Gaussian distribution, in one dimension, let's imagine that this Gaussian has zero mean and unit variance. Okay? So you know that within the range of plus minus one sigma, you take six, if you assume this is the percentage of the area under this curve from here. So it's 34, 34. Almost 70% of the area or the mass of the distribution falls between plus minus sigma. If you go to sigma, minus two sigma, actually this amounts to 0.96. So basically now you want the dimensional Gaussian, if you look at the center, contains most of the mass. What happens when we actually unfold this Gaussian in two dimensions, in three dimensions, and so on and so forth? Well, here in this table, what appears is actually the probability or the mass that is actually in details. So more than two sigma away from this side and from this side. So just this area in the tails, okay? For dimension one, the tails contain only 4% of the mass. But once you increase the dimension, basically in dimension 20, if you draw, you draw uh, randomly from the distribution, you would be basically something from the, from the tails. So if you have pure data, you think Gaussian from dimension 20 on, you are basically sampling from the tails. The chances that you are sampling from anywhere close to the center is close to zero. It's because there, there is a high probability that if at least one of uh, dimensions is more than two sigma, then it's then I am already out of oh, the operation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the more dimensions actually, when you compute the integral, actually the differential is also higher. But basically. The point here to get is that our intuitions in low dimensions fail dramatically in high dimensions in many cases. Actually, these are not the most strange cases. There are a few more, few more strange. One of them is that you have a sphere, and you, have a, you populate your sphere with points. 
uh, with coordinates uh, that are independent and identically distributed. So basically, you have a random a sphere full of random points. Um, if you take a section of it, um, you will get most of the mass of this of this uh, of this sphere. If you take a completely different section, you again will obtain most of the mass. But the thing is that the intersection between these two is really small. So there are weird things happening in spider-games here. At least, I mean, mathematically that makes sense, but the intuition that we have in two and three dimensions doesn't extrapolate. This is called concentration of measure. It's actually quite cool for the And the last problem I want to tell you about, or one of the last problems about five-dimensional data, uh, is that uh, if we have a cloud of points in three dimensions, and I fix one point here, you can still speak about, okay, these points are near, these points are far away from this, right? You have distances are discriminative, discriminative notion, right? You can separate points according to those which are near and those which are far away. The thing is that if you go to very high dimensions, for example, and you populate your space with uh, random vectors, uh, actually the distance between one point to any other really, really concentrates. So basically, any point is at almost the same distance as any other point. Okay. So how high should the dimension be where it's not possible? I think already from dimensions 10 or 20, it's already, basically, I mean, you have already quite, quite, uh, um, quite, quite a narrow distribution of, the, of your distances. I did a like a face comparison, mm -hmm. two face images, and uh, calculated the Euclidean distance between two faces. And it was compared to well. But you only had two images. Well enough. Uh, I had uh, 130 images, and uh, one image I had to choose like. Mm -hmm. To which person this image is most closest? Mm -hmm. Well, this is for the case, for example, when the random vector, this, these are for random vectors. Okay. okay. If your data has a structure and natural images and faces has a lot of a structure, your data will not look like one of these uh, clouds of points. We have probably will live in a very low dimensional manifold, and there, the effective dimension will be very low. So your strings dimension will be very high, but actually the cloud of points will be living in a low dimensional space. But this is also what makes, for instance, KNRS networks algorithms very risky in high dimensions because distance loses its discriminative, discriminative power. Because most of the points are more or less the same distance to from each other. If they are random vectors or according to some other decision. And what I think is actually one of the biggest problems is visualization of data. You might say, okay, but here you're visualizing these EE data set. Yes, it's true, but how you really your brain really processes this data. You basically go one by one. I mean, you might make some saccades to look for the first channels or the last channel, but you really don't understand this data intuitively. And you have some certain pattern discovery in your brain for this type of data, but it's not really good. Okay, here you basically go one by one. If you want to compare one channel with the other, you will look first one and then the other. It's, it's not really good visualization. It's not very insightful for humans. For example, if I would give you uh, the position of a football player, and it will tell you it's x coordinate versus time, and it's y coordinate versus time. 
you will not really get an intuition of what he is, if he's gonna score, if the situation is. But if I give you in X versus Y, you immediately know the situation. And imagine no one player, imagine now the 22 players and the ball. If I give you the coordinates of this guy versus time, like something very similar to this type of thing, you really will have a hard time to understand the situation. If I give you this thing, X and Y coordinates, immediately you know, right? So we are extremely good pattern discoverers in our brain, but it has to be uh, the appropriate representation. So in this case, one coordinate versus the other coordinate. And the problem is that our brains were developed only to do these things in two or three dimensions, not four, not five, not 10,000. So what is the hope for all these problems, to solve all these problems? The hope is that we might find some sensible manner, some sensible way to reduce the dimensionality of our data. And in many cases, that would be the difference from having an infeasible problem to have a feasible one. So in many cases, this can be a key difference in understanding your data set and creating hypotheses about your data set. Okay? And even just computational problems, being able to estimate the probability density of your data set, some information theoretic functionals, many things to apply some nonlinear regression to be able to classify. This is a huge, can make a huge difference. So what we need to find, actually some simplifying assumptions on that high dimensional space and that, those clouds of points in order to reduce the effective dimension of the data. The data still will live in this huge stringent dimensionality space. But the data itself might have some structure that allows us to reduce its dimensionality. We look at it from a different point of view. Okay, and this is exactly what dimensionality reduction aims to do. To pass from some high dimensional data to map it to some low dimensional representation in order to later on be able to visualize or continue with some processing. Okay, let's just see if we can start having some intuition about what uh, this structure could be. So I would like to ask you now, you have to answer. Uh, from this, we agree that a set of images or anything can be represented geometrically as a cloud of points. What if I would choose different random pixel images? How that cloud would look like? You can think in two dimensions if you want. For this like point. a ball. Exactly. Would be like a, a ball. So no much structure. It's not flat in any dimension, it's just a ball that is really exploring all of these D axes, right? It's not flat in any of them, right? So we have not much hope to, if we just, our data set consists of random uh, pixels, images, we don't have much hope to really reduce the dimensionality of this cloud, if we, okay? Natural images. Weird shapes. Yeah. It's because like color. Yeah. 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 Uh, there is a structure in that data set, it's correlation. And that makes that this cloud will not explore all possible dimensions in this huge dimensional space. But, uh, in particular, natural images are very structured. Uh, they also have a structure not only in the X and Y dimension, but also if you scale it, if you zoom in or zoom in out, they have some properties that remain invariant. So uh, they have a lot of structure in natural images. 
or saying in other words, if you look from them near or far away, there are many properties, statistical properties that still are invariant. So there is a lot of structuring, actually, the set of natural images, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny one compared to the one that you can create with something like this. It's a really tiny composition. What about this set of images? Imagine now I provide you a, this is one image, this is another, this is another, this is another. What do you see, first of all, about this set of images? That's just what do you see? I mean, not how the flow would look like this. Yeah. <laughs> but what happens from here to here? Yeah, it's just yeah. And from here to here is the scale. Right? So what do you think? Any intuition about how this cloud might look like? But do you say it would be a line or? Yeah, some shape, but you can tell me something a bit more about that shape. <laughs> so probably you think it will be a volume? Or it will be a surface. Uh, what, 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 what is the dimension? Yeah, well, the space will be. I mean, if this has 64 by 64, the yeah, space will be, I think, 4096. Yeah. But this will be one point. This will be a different point, a different point, a different point. But these points, how they will be arranged? In the horizontal thing, we have the same number of pixels that are activated. Rotated, we have. Same number of big pixels that are black, so there's already something that is constant. Mm -hmm. That should give us some reduction in dimension. Yeah. And the other one. In any case, without even going to any detail, probably the points formed by each, each of these points will be lying a surface of dimension two. So it will not explore many dimensions, probably it will be curved, it will not be flat, it will be curved, but probably will lie in something that is well approximated by some surface of dimension too. Okay, and the same that we did for images or text or whatever, you can do it for neural data. So let's go again. Uh, if you have neurons that are just crazy, are noisy, they are not caring about any stimuli, they are fighting whenever they want, however they want. This will be just a cloud of points. Actually, they will go from one point to another point, it will be a trajectory, but it will be like noise. They will explore all possible dimensions, all possible directions, not much structure. What happens is I have a set of neurons in my inner region of the brain, and there is some neuromodulatory influence or some common drive, some latent variable that actually is driving all these neurons at the same time. Then probably this cloud of points will be not exploring all dimensions. It will be flat in many, many dimensions. Because actually, everything will be very correlated. All the different units will be very correlated because they are receiving the same input, basically. Okay. So there will be a lot of correlation, and this cloud will be very flat. And the same thing will happen, actually, if neurons are interacting with each other. If two neurons, imagine two neurons, if they are really interacting with each other, Still, they will not explore 
imagine two dimensions, they will not explore everywhere in the plane. They will maintain probably some cloud of points. Moving in diagonals. Yeah, if they are perfectly correlated, they will move in diagonals. If they are not perfectly correlated, they will still move in one dimension, but it will not be aligned. But still, the point, this might be hard to think the first time. Maybe I don't want you to really have a perfect intuition of how these clouds look like. But the thing is that you must understand that noisy neurons or noisy images or whatever is a cloud exploring all dimensions. If there is correlation or redundancy or there is interaction between the, the neurons or correlation between pixels, the cloud will be flat in some dimension. Let me put an example from physics. Probably some of you have seen it already. We have to break now. To stop it. So what I really want to see is the following. It's some um, here are metronomes, okay? That you can actually start. It's like a pendulum. Start it and they will start tic tac, right? In principle, you can put them to tic tac at different frequencies. And what this guy is doing, actually putting five metronomes that are started at different frequency, okay? But he's putting them on top of uh, a wood plate, wood board, on top of two cola cans. And because he's putting this thing to the cola cans, these metronomes will communicate a little bit, will interact. So you will see what happens. Because every time this one of the metrons goes to one side, it tends to move the wooden, this wooden plate, yeah. uh, toward that side. And this means that it's transmitting some momentum to the next one. So they are really exchanging some momentum. Okay. So they are really, uh, initially they have said maybe this to 50 hertz and this to 30 hertz, whatever. But because they can communicate, they will change this frequency a little bit. And they will do it in such a way that they will end up at unison doing that. That's the minimum the metronomes have the weights. Hmm? Uh, old metronomes have the weights. In this the is done with new ones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, simply the idea is simply that you have some pendulum, some system that uh, okay. is having some frequency. Because of the interaction, they can end up doing synchronously. And what this has to do with dimensionality reduction? The thing is that before, when these metronomes were here on the on the table, you really this thing, if you look at it as some neuron, some trajectory it would be one point in a five-dimensional space just moving everywhere it wants, like a cloud. Because you need five variables to describe this motion in principle, one per metronome. Once they are coupled and they are synchronous, actually you just need one. It's so redundant that you just need one. If you know what happens to one metronome, you know what happens to the others. In this sense, from the geometrical point of view, what happens is that you have a cloud of points in five dimensions that collapses to one line. 
in one dimension. Okay? So this phenomenon you can think of it about dimensionality reduction happening in physical systems. Okay. So we discuss a little bit five-dimensional data, which promise they have on what might be the causes or the reasons that one actually can perform some dimensionality reduction. There is redundancy in your data. But actually, they may have some underlying reasons on the latent variables that might explain the diversity of your data. And when you have correlations, interactions among the systems, then you have a chance to, that you will be able to reduce your data, the dimensionality of your data. Okay? So interactions, correlations. Okay, so now we can get to the definition of dimensionality reduction. It's the mapping of data from a higher to a lower dimensional space such that variance data is not informative, or data can be discarded, or that one can reveal the subspace on which your data really lives. Okay? And this will be still useful for data visualization and for classifiers or regressions to extract low dimensional features. A bit more mathematically, we will start with a data set. Okay? It will be a of observations living in some d-dimensional space, and we want to find a lower dimensional projection of this data set that lives in a much smaller dimension. Okay. So now let's speak about this intrinsic dimension. Before, we spoke about extrinsic dimension, which is this space where this cloud of points lives, but now we're going to speak about intrinsic dimension, which is the dimensionality of the cloud itself. So if I have points, for instance, on this surface, the extrinsic dimension would be 3, because actually for each point, in principle, I would need an x, y, and z coordinate. But this surface is really flat. Okay? And because of that, the intrinsic dimension would be actually 2. Okay? How can, if I give you a cloud of points, how can you really estimate this small d, this intrinsic dimensionality? Here is very easy, right? Because I make it a continuum. You see spin, but imagine you cannot visualize. Imagine this thing lives in 200,000 dimensions. How would you estimate the dimensionality of this? Okay, let's look at some examples. The dimensionality of a single point would be zero. Right? If I speak about the dimensionality of this object, it would be one. And the dimensionality of some plane, some surface, would be two. Which algorithm can we run on uh, a cloud of points distributed like this in order to receive the answer 0, 1, and 2? So one of the options is something called correlation dimension. Okay. Correlation dimension, what it does is the following. It starts at one point, okay, takes one point here, and it looks at the circle of radius epsilon. The idea is that when I increase this radius, the number of points that fall within the circle will scale as epsilon to the intrinsic dimension of the data. Let's say, for dimension zero, if I increase this radius of the circle, no, no more points will fall within the circle, just one point. Okay. So actually, the number of points will, will grow with d equals zero, so it will be constant, so no more points are added. If I do this thing for a line, or for a points which live on a line, if I start with some small epsilon, I will have some number of points. 
If I double the radius of this circle, okay, actually I will have double the points. Right? If I double this thing, actually I will have double the points. But what happens if I go to some object that really has dimension two? If I start with a small circle, I will have a certain number of points. I will double the radius of this thing, and actually the number of points I will have will be this radius squared to the power of two. So if I want to estimate the dimensionality of a cloud of points, what I have to do is to center myself in one of these points, count how many points of this cloud are within some certain radius, and start increasing this radius. And by the way the number of points falling within these bigger circles scale, I can extract the dimensionality of my data. Okay. So the way to do this is, is here, it's called correlation dimension. Actually, when I compute the correlation dimension, this thing here, all I have to do is to take the logarithm, and then I obtain the, the dimensionality. Just as an example, this actually is the surface of a three-dimensional sphere. Okay. So the extensive dimension will be three. I know it looks flat, but actually it's a, it's a sphere. It means that these transparent points on the back actually appear here. But it's just the surface of the Earth. So if I have this cloud of points, actually, if I run my correlation dimension and I compute this d, which it will be the, the logarithm, the, the slope of the logarithm of this guy versus epsilon, actually, I will think here that the slope of this thing is 2. Because when this grows 1, this actually grows 3. So here I recover perfectly that the dimensionality of this data set is actually 2. Okay. Again, because it's, this thing is not so easy in higher dimensions because uh, the same phenomena that we saw with concentration of measure. So if I actually have a Gaussian in two dimensions, and I run this algorithm, it will give me some values close to two. If this cloud is in five dimensions, it will return the right answer. But when we go to dimension 100, I will need many more data to recover. So the, le the lesson here is that there are some algorithms to find out the dimensionality, the real dimensionality of your data, but also in high dimensions they fail. So, so much for what is dimensionality reduction in general, okay? What is good for, and what are the problems associated with high dimensions, and what uh, low dimensions problems can solve. Who really needs this uh, dimensionality reduction? Well, It is needed basically by anyone who has to deal with high dimensional data. And there are two main users of this thing. One is the brain itself, because the brain is exposed to stimuli such as images, sounds, that actually live in very high dimensions. So the brain is the first one who actually has to, in its processing, at the end it has from this Image it has to recognize if there is a person there and who is that person, and very fast, right? So it has to go from this low-level representation on retina, where everything is just pixels, so to say, to has to go to a very high-level representation which actually recognizes who is that person, has very high-level information, okay? So it has to make a transformation from low uh, level of representation to a high level of representation. And to do that, probably needs to use some dimensionality reduction uh, algorithms in its way. The second user actually is us analyzing brain data. So when we stick an electrode into the brain and record neural activity, as I said, if we record many neurons, 
we'll probably need some dimensionality reduction techniques to visualize and to understand that data. So actually, two people are interested in, in this case. The brain itself and us analyzing the brain. Also, in the summer school, there was the Stuttgart mm -hmm. professor who did with uh, high-dimensional data visualization. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, one example was that, for example, computer tomography or fMRI mm -hmm. data, mm -hmm. but compute Shot of uh, one picture of uh, one body, then it takes like 200 gigabytes of data, but you have to do it on a CD. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have to reduce the amount of dimensions so much that you can yeah. do it on a CD. Actually, compression is also something also related to a bit dimensionality reduction in some sense. They also benefit from redundancy to try to send much less information than originally. So let's start with the two of dimensionality reduction. Probably many or several of these techniques you have heard before or even you have applied before. This is an incomplete picture, by the way. It's much more, uh, much more uh, branchy. So starting by dimensionality reduction, you can divide the techniques in different ways. This author divided between linear and nonlinear. One can divide it in local and global. One can divide in projective methods and manifold learning methods. There are different taxonomies. The thing is that maybe you recognize here some techniques like PCA, um, autoencoders, maybe some of you, kernel PCA. Anyway, we will go over some of them, but probably you have applied already PCA to your data. You have already done some dimensional reduction or some independent component analysis. Let's start explaining some of the elements of the zoo and uh, to some organization. So our division of the dimensionality reduction techniques uh, is the following. On one way, there are methods that rely on projections. So this cloud will be projected into some low dimensional space in different ways. And these are the projective methods. And there are other methods that actually they try to find the structure of your manifold, of your cloud, so to say. With Project without projecting, or without projecting directly. Let's start by projection projection methods. So as I said, projection methods they want to find low-dimensional projections or representation of your data that extracts useful information, and they do so by maximizing some objective functions. Let me explain what it is. If you have a cloud of points in three dimensions, it's very easy to project it into two dimensions. You just have to forget about one of the coordinates, then you already have your points in the plane. But basically, that's normally useless. What you want to do is to project while maximizing something of your interest. Okay. For example, let's start with a technique called projection pursuit. The idea of projection pursuit basically is that in your cloud of points, you want to find some directions that are interesting. What does it mean that the direction is interesting? Well, the reason is that if in some direction the distribution of your data is Gaussian, this direction is not interesting because many things give rise to Gaussian distributions. The most interesting, interesting directions are those for which your data departs from Gaussianity or normality, becomes less Gaussian. For example, imagine your cloud of points look like this. In this case, which directions seem 
more interesting to you. I mean, there is some arbitrariness, but uh, according to our definition, yeah, the x-axis. Because if I project this cloud into the x-axis, how will be the distribution? The distribution will be like nothing. It will be like a bump here, another bump here, nothing. And this is very different from a Gaussian thing because it has two peaks. Everybody sees that. Hmm? So if just these points, you forget about the y coordinate and all of them come into this axis. In this axis, the distribution is like a peak goes to zero almost, another peak and goes to zero. It's very different from a Gaussian. And this direction is interesting because it's the one that will tell me later on that actually there are two clusters, one associated with each of these peaks. If I would have projected into this axis, I would have taken some. Gaussian, and I would have missed that there are two clusters too. But would PCA like for something maximizing the variability? Yeah, PCA would project it into this. Yeah, so PCA would project on the y-axis. Yeah. But projection for suite or independent component analysis would project into the direction where the thing is more different than a Gaussian. Independent component analysis is a cause, you know, projection for suite, okay? So what it tries is to find projections that makes probability distributions statistically as independent as possible. Uh, normally it's a technique applied for dinosaur separation. You have, whatever, a microphone recording the, the speaking of several groups of people talking, for example, and actually you want to uh, invert the problem. You want to find actually this cluster of people who are speaking. Normally you apply ICA. This is, again, finding directions in your cloud of points which look less Gaussian as possible. Okay? Now we talk about PCA. Okay? PCA, as Ari mentioned, for example, will have found the direction of maximum variance. Okay? So if I give you this cloud of points, PCA will give me this direction with the maximum variance and this with the second maximum variance. But again, you saw in the other example that if you're interested in clustering or if you're interested in finding directions that look weird, actually you don't have to do PCA, you have to do projection pursuit. Right. Okay. But PCA is really, really nice. It's well understood theoretically. It's probably one of the first techniques you always have to apply to your data just to, uh, to visualize or to dimensional active reduction. But PCA, as we said before, searches for projections and with the data has maximum value. Okay. And this cloud of points will be this first and this first. Theoretically, PCA has very nice properties. And if your data really lives on a line, but again, you must think that this is not easy to visualize. In three dimensions, yeah, you can plot them and see, oh, my data lives on a line. But your data is in 300 dimensions. I don't know how you wanna check if you're, I mean, you can, but it's very difficult to check that you data has some structure, right? So we really need these tools when we work with high-dimensional data. Don't think that in two and three dimensions because you can visualize it, uh, it's trivial. You really need this set of tools when the data is high-dimensional. So if your data, for any reason, has very a lot of structure and really leaves this cloud of points actually is a line, PCA will find directly that line you're looking for. PCA is widely used for feature extraction. Okay, or you have to just project into uh, less dimensions than your original space, and then you will perform feature extraction, dimensional reduction. 
the access on PCA actually decorrelate the data. It says that uh, the projections, the different access now will not be correlated. Before, I mean, if you have your cloud, imagine this is your X coordinate and this is your Y coordinate. So X and Y will be correlated if the cloud is on the diagonal. Right? The X component of different points and the Y component of different points will be correlated. But when you are in these coordinates, this and this, actually X and Y become the correlate. So PCA decorrelates the coordinates of your data. And last property, or nice theoretical property of PCA that I would like to mention is actually the PCA maximizes the mutual information between your own high-dimensional data and your low-dimensional uh, data. So preserving the variance preserves the most mutual information as possible, and this on Gaussian data. This is just if you are interested in information theory. Okay, next thing in the zoo is kernel PCA. Kernel PCA is very simple if you understood PCA. Kernel PCA, what it does is simply this is, imagine this is your original data, which is amazing now, to simplify. What you do is you apply uh, some function that moves your data into some feature space. Okay, and there in that feature space you apply PCA. So it's just a transformation of your data into some other space, and normally this transformation is non-linear, okay? And that on that space you perform a standard PCA. Uh, this can be done computationally very efficient because of the kernel trick, which means basically that all you have to compute is actually the kernel, some function between uh, two points of your data set of having to compute the feature transformation exclusively. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The thing is that simply this can be done uh, very efficient compositionally because of the kernel trick. And uh, the fact that... The kernel trick is that if you have your original space, x, uh, you can apply a, a function to move it to some other feature space. Normally, this is very costly because if your function is not linear, basically you will have to take every point and apply these things. Okay? And if you have 100,000 points, you will have to do it 100,000 times. This set could be a polynomial, for example. Whatever. The kernel trick, what it tells you is that if for your algorithm, what matters at the end of the day, is actually, uh, let me call this thing, right? If for your algorithm, such as PCA, at the end what matters is the inner product of different points, so distances between points, then you might find actually some kernel, which is a function k, which is exactly this thing. So the thing is the following. Normally, to for some algorithms, you would like to map your original data set in a nonlinear manner into another space. Okay. But if if your algorithm all it cares is at the end from X, let's call it Y. If at the end your algorithm all it cares is the distance for the inner product between your, your samples in this new space, sometimes you can find a kernel 
which is a function depending on your f, such that if you apply uh, the kernel to these data points in your original space, it's actually the same than moving from x to y and there compute the inner product. So you can save yourself to go from x to y. You can compute the inner products here directly as some function here. So does it mean that when they are close in the original space, they are close in the like mm, depending on this f. Mm. Normally, if yes, but depending on the f. Close in the projected uh, space, then they also close in the kernel. But the other way around is not. Then f, for example, you have, uh, for example, f is multiplied by a million, and your x is minus one one. So the distance between them was two, and now two million. Still, that probably maintains the networks, at networks, or at least the originality of the networks. But Elias right that in principle it doesn't need to maintain uh, distance at all. It's simply that for some algorithms, like for example, the reason of this is that PCA. If you apply PCA here, it will be very bad result. Which is the which is the direction with most variance, which is the cloud, which is the axis of the cloud here. So if you want to apply PCA to use this data set to separate the fact that there are three clusters in this data set, one, two, and three, PCA will fail. One thing you can do, if you apply some Gaussian kernel, is actually move these points to apply some distortion of these points to move them in some way that the three clusters now are separated. This is going from X to Y. You apply some transformation to your points with the hope that in the transformation, these guys actually will be separated linearly. So now you are in here in one. The kernel trick refers to the fact that if you want to apply some algorithm here, and this algorithm only depends on the distance or the inner product of the samples in this new space, okay, that has been mapped via this function, if you find a kernel such that its evaluation on the original space is equal to the inner product in the transformative space, then you can save the, the trouble to go in this high dimensional space. All you need is to apply the kernel to your original input. It's simple to explain uh, what are the axes for the plotting in kernel. Uh, the axis would be, um, <laughs> I don't know, for that I would need to apply this function to some unit vector here. But anyway, you must think simply about from some space to another space where each point there is a rule to put one point here to another point here. And if this rule is non-linear, it might perfectly happen that actually this cloud of points here gets mapped to this cloud of points here. A map is nothing else than a transition rule from point to point. Right? And if this thing is non-linear, things that here are non-linearly separable might become linearly separable here. So we, find, we take a function that maps this points to a dimension and this similar points to another dimension close to each Close, but here the thing is that here you cannot put a line that yeah. separates the three classes, but yeah. here you can. So it's just to distort your data in such a way that there are some algorithms that can run easier there. And the kernel PCA is simply first transform your data and then apply PCA. Redefining the distance function. If you project to a different space and now calculate the gradient distance, mm -hmm. it's the same way as if in the original space, 
space you define your kernel. distance as this kernel. Yes. Yeah. Define your distance between points as the kernel. How? Like if you only think you have the distance between two points, how do you get those x and y coordinates? I don't know, but this is uh, this picture in the middle here. Is, uh, and if you did the line that we don't actually do, the one with y, okay. Mm -hmm. This we don't actually do, we don't actually project it. This is the one that we want to avoid. Yeah. Just to visualize the difference. But how do you know that we can have this kind of data in an original space? Uh, that when we apply some predefined functions to it, that it will be linearly separable. Yeah. yeah. We don't. You don't, I think. You cannot really know for sure. But in many cases, if the, the function is complex enough, such a polynomial of high degree or uh, some Gaussian function, whatever, it occurs in many cases. And I think it's easier to separate data. Yeah. But I mean, maybe there are some theories that say, okay, for certain type of data, certain kernels, certain functions do that. But in principle, I think uh, for arbitrary data sets, maybe you cannot really guarantee that. But is there an algorithm to find the root f? I don't know. The most uses are polynomial and radial basis functions or exponential kernels. I think these two are the most useful. And there are some rules of thumb, so people who really use these things know a little bit which degree of the polynomial you should use, and things like that. But, uh, you yeah. know, and what you have to know, actually, you the problem is to find a kernel that uh, makes for this that. trick work. And for Gaussians, we have it, and for uh, mm -hmm. polynomials, we have it. For others, I don't know. I'm confused. Like, if they say they get a different picture for Gaussian kernel and polynomial kernel, mm -hmm. then they must have some kind of way to calculate those x and y's. Yeah, I think you, you can really compute these things, but it's not, this is just how points are mapped here. But uh, in order to know what these axes are, I think you would need to take one vector here, one unit vector here, and see how it moves here. But it might be, it might probably not be a line. It would be a curvy thing. So a line here would be a curve here. So it's not easy. But the, the thing about kernel PCA or kernel trick in general is that you can avoid going here. Okay. Um, canonical correlation analysis. So imagine now that you have two data sets, not one. Okay? And that these data sets are pair in the sense that I have some correspondence from one sample. I can align one sample here and one sample here. Maybe because, for example, these are different views of the same object. Okay? So people put the sample of, I have an image and I have a text. Okay, I have another image and another text describing. So you have like two data sets and they are paired, right? So what canonical correlation analysis does is the following. It projects one of the data sets. We have two. One of the data sets, okay, it projects it into some direction. It projects the other in the other direction. And it does so. So A and B, these projections are such that now, these projections are maximally correlated. Okay? The A and B are like the vectors. A and B are like, would be in, probably would be matrices in this, that uh, project your plot of points into some direction. But the one, thing. To one dimension or to. Well, to one uh, direction. Mm -hmm. 
Then you project your cloud. Imagine your cloud, you can project your cloud in different, you have a cloud of points here, I can project it into this wall, or in, even to one line. I can project it there, I can project it. I have a lot of freedom where I project my data, right? What this thing does is that you have two clouds of points. It projects this one in one direction. It projects this one in another direction, such that now the projections are maximally correlated. Now it's visualization. I mean, mm -hmm. I had so if you have these clouds in a row, like here, mm -hmm. the point that if you want to back leave them with a light on mm -hmm. the line, so that there are shadows that go on mm -hmm. the bottom. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. And now we go, I mean, as you see, now we start with data which was unlabeled, no labels. Uh, we speak about PCA, projection per suite. Now, before we move to um, data, which was paired, I had to, for any reason, I want actually to find the projections that maximize the, the correlation between my. Where is the CCA used? As I said, they use it, I know they use it for some instance when they have these, for instance, images and text. They want to find which features of the image correlate better with which features of the text, mm -hmm. for example. So, if you have a pair of data sets, if you want to find which features really correlate between these two descriptions or these two points of view of the same object, CCA can be used. Find correlating features in different data sets. Yes, in pair data sets. Also, I mean, I normally if I have time to talk about the brain, but also in the brain, you can mine two areas that actually uh, must represent the same object. Okay? Yeah, you might also have like uh, some. Also, in two regions of the brain that must represent the same object, the same visual object or whatever, you might also try to find which set of neurons or which combination of neurons or which directions actually are really the features that actually are, are related. So, I think it was actually the, all these things was started in social sciences. So, it was psychologists also who were interested in, for instance, different tests of intelligence actually represent a common, unique, uh, latent variable or not. So, there were people interested in different tests also. Which features of different tests really correlate and capture the latent variable, for instance, in intelligence tests? You can have different tests, and then you can try to see which, which features really correlate. And if uh, they really correlate very well, probably means actually both intelligence tests are capturing a single feature, a single latent source. So, as I said, we start with unlabeled data, then we want to pair data sets, and now we're going to speak a little bit about labeled data. Here, the first tool of choice is linear discriminant analysis, also known as feature analysis, feature discrimination analysis. And it's the natural extension of PCA for the case of level data. So, for example, LDA searches projections where two classes are well separated. Okay. For instance, if I have this cloud of points, I know it has label blue, and this cloud of points has label red, or whatever label it means. Well, I think, okay, which line I will project my cloud, right? Such that I will keep a, a strong, uh, very well separated uh, representation of the two different labels. If you do it without care, then you might think, okay, I will try to find which 
line, actually the mean of the two clouds are more far away. I mean, if you put a line like this, well, the means would be projected and they would be very near, but if you put this line, it's the line that actually maximizes the distance between the means of these two clouds. But, this is bad, if you only want to separate the means. Because once you project this cloud, all these points will be here in the middle. And all these points of the red will be here in the middle. So the means will be very well separated, but there will be a lot of overlap. A lot of blue and red points will fall on the same part of the, this line. So what you have to do, not what this LDA does, is try to maximize interclass distance between points while minimizing intraclass bias. So you try to find a line such that red and blue points are maximally spaced while at the same time trying to minimize the coverage of the blue and the coverage of the red points. So you try to maximize distance while keeping variance also as narrow as possible. And this is actually what LDA returns. If you want to separate or project your level data in a manner that the two clouds are really well separated, you should project it on this line. How is LDA different from ICA? Oh, this is labeled. You know what you want to separate, and there you have it. You don't know what you want to separate. You first find distribution, and you first understand that you have distribution, and then you have to separate. So these are neither uh, good examples, like the lines just in between them? Or well, this is the line that then the returns. This is a bad example, because in the middle of this line, when you project, it will be blue and red points. So the two clouds will be overlapped. Here's a good example because when you project, you have to project orthogonal to this line. So this point will come here. And this point will come here. Oh, okay. You have to project mm -hmm. to this line. And here the two clouds will be maximally separated. Do we have a method which draws a line between two clusters? Yeah, yeah support vector machines, for example. But actually, the problem with machine would be very almost orthogonal to this line, right? Exactly. That, that, that is what I was going to ask. Mm -hmm. like, uh, isn't it equivalent to uh, drawing a line that separates two clusters? Not exactly. Not exactly, but uh, if the clusters are well separated, it would be approximate. Because the problem with machine just depends on some uh, support vectors which are near the frontier of these two clusters. But in this case, if you would want to do classification, one can do try to do some specification, which is not as good as support vector machine, but it's also okay. Is find this line and then draw a orthogonal line here. I think we are given up with the classifier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sufficient dimension reduction. I think I wouldn't speak about this. Well, the last uh, for projective method I'm going to speak is random projections. One cool way to decrease the dimensionality of your data is to do it randomly. And this is based on some lemma called Johnson Lindenstrom lemma that says that uh, if you project your three dimensional data into some two dimensional data and you do it really randomly, uh, 
you can be sure with some tolerance that the distances here between this point and this point will be approximate to the distances here. So basically, these random projections, what they aim to do is to preserve distances between points in a high dimensional space. This is has three axes, right? And when you project, if you do it randomly enough, uh, actually the distance now living on the plane will be more or less the same than it did. Why? <laughs> It's called Lipschitz embedding. You do many uh, random projections, so one of them is good, or it just... The average is good. Do you do many projections or do you do just one? Well, you do one, but actually it's a... The thing is that this is not from three to two dimensions. From three to two dimensions, it would not work. Yeah. It has to be from maybe dimension, whatever, 100 to dimension, maybe 20. Mm. But this one. Just one time. For some points, definitely, right? Yeah, but this is uh, this theorem is probabilistic. It says basically, if you start with dimension b, and your dimension you are projecting is k, which is a number bigger than the log of n, and your number of points and epsilon tolerance, then you're guaranteed that the distance in your projection space is welcome is, uh, in some is an epsilon distance from the original one. But it's probabilistic. The key thing is that the projection has to be has nothing to do with the structure of your data. If your projection has nothing to do with the structure of your data, then probabilistically you are guaranteed this. If your projection is a particular, you can find projections for which this is not maintained. But for random projections, probabilistically it works. Okay. Second, uh, it will be very quick here. So the first set of techniques was about projecting your cloud. Okay. You have your cloud in three dimensions, you want to project it into the plane, let's say. Manifold learning is another set of techniques very popular nowadays. That what they try to do is just to find actually to parameterize the shape of your data cloud. If your data lives in a manifold like this, or like this, or anything that is uh, flat in some dimension, manifold learning techniques will try to learn uh, these structures without projecting like multidimensional scaling. Is something uh, very cool, which you give it uh, a set of distances in your cloud of points, and it tries to map it into some low dimensional space respecting those distances. Okay, just let me run some small example that Tambet did. For instance, here, in this code, what Tambet did is took the just a square of distances between the different European cities, right? So just simply the distance, not the locations. We don't have the location of these points. All we have is distances between different European cities. And then apply multidimensional scaling. And from that thing, he will get points, okay? But we start with no point. We start just with a matrix of distances between different cities. We can have Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, London, and you put Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, London, and you fill this matrix with the distances. No locations, no GPS locations, no latitude and longitude. And after applying multidimensional scaling, we will obtain points in two dimensions that best respect those distances. And you will see how, how good it works. So this is the, let me, okay. So after Tambet input, yes, distances between different cities in Europe, we will obtain this cloud of points. And after 
a proper rotation and overlying the map of Europe. Sorry. Yeah, actually, I want to do that. Okay. <laughs> you cannot read probably the label, but it's Rome, Paris, Milan. It's based on some sort of triangulation at the end. But the thing is that you start from distances and you get points, locations of points, right? And they perform really good. Of course, they perform really good because the original data. In fact, live into dimensions. If the original data would have lived in ten dimensions, it would have performed worse. But still. So basically, you're quite restricted in the way how you can put points given the. Yeah. Yeah. It's not magic, but it still is cool because what I like is that you don't start from location; you start from distances. But yeah, it's magic, but it's nice. That's some that's magic. <laughs> and this is why you use for visualization. If you have your neuronal data and for any reason you cannot compute activations, you can compute distances, then one can apply MBS to visualize your data. I have four minutes to finish. Let's see if uh, we speak about one or two more methods. Isomap. What happens if your crowd of points look like this? If you apply PCA, again, bullshit. If you apply uh, multidimensional scaling, again, bullshit because it would compute distance, the distance between this point and this point, it would be a certain distance between this point and this point, it would be another distance. It doesn't know that the data lives in one dimension. Okay? So Isomap says, okay, it makes much more sense if I want to compute the distance between this guy and this guy, not take the Euclidean distance, but take the distance. Okay? This is called geodesic distances. And Isomap is only this. It's Multidimensional scaling, but the distance I will input are not Euclidean ones between points, are distance along the cloud. Okay? This is isomorphic. So you do it. And if you apply to images, for example, here this set of images, again, they only differ in, uh, in orientation, in up, down, pose, and in lighting direction. So, this actually lives in, again, 4,000 dimensions, each of these points. But since this set of images only changes in two degrees of freedom, after applying some up, I will obtain that actually the space is very well uh, described by two dimensions. Okay? And I can use it to generate more data, I can use it to rank different images in different degrees of freedom. And I recover the right structure of my data set, which is two-dimensional, no, 4,000 pixels, or 4,000 dimensions. This is the result we get from applying isomap to pixel values. Yeah. I will not speak about local linear embedding. Diffusion maps is my favorite. So, hmm, okay. Diffusion map says, okay, don't care about Euclidean distance. Don't care about geodesic distance, care about diffusion distance, which is basically the flow between points. Instead of geodesic distance is the shorter path from one point to another, right? It was what this map used, and it's fine in many cases. But in some other cases, like when there are clusters, and in more, many other cases, it makes more sense to compute the distance between point A and B 
as some sort of flow, let's say, if I would put stuff here, some random walkers, how many of them will arrive at a certain point in time here? The energy distance between B and A is the same than between B and C, but the flow between B and A is much smaller than the flow between B and C. Between B and C, there are many pathways going to the same. Between B and A, all of them has a bottleneck here. So diffusion maps convey another notion of distance, which is flow. And they are theoretically really, really, really nice. They have extremely good If I give it this set of images, whatever, and I just use diffusion maps to project it to one dimension, so to say, using these distances, then I obtain already they are kind of rank them or orient them. Uh, this is almost like magic. If I have two shapes, two clouds of points, imagine people in, computer, in, uh, in, in graphics also take like shapes as a cloud of points. So with diffusion maps, if I'm able to, uh, in a shape, if I'm able to uh, know one point, how it corresponds, imagine nose and nose, okay? I give this thing to some map and do some magic. Then it will be able to stack the correspondence between any other parts of the body. Just giving it right one. The assumption, of course, is that the body doesn't stretch, or doesn't grow, it's just, you know, movements. So it's called isometric. But uh, I'm not able to do that. This, this was an amazing result three years ago. It's a very highly cited paper for people who also work with matching shapes and shape recognition. Is everything looking other things? But time is over. Autoencoder, just the last thing for some of you. To start with some input data, is use neural networks to do dimensionality reduction. To start with the neural input layer in your network, you reduce the number of nodes until you have a few number of nodes, okay? And this is the input layer, number of nodes in the input layer is the big D. The number of nodes here is small d. And then all you have to do is to reverse it and actually you train it such that the input data is the same as the output data, okay? So basically you compress it and then you uncompress it, okay? And if you put this thing, this bottleneck here, at this level you have performed dimensionality reduction. And I think it's time to finish. I have a few more slides, but I guess most of you who are not interested in the research of these things, you can also go because it's time. For those of you maybe in the group or also who has interest, you can say maybe in five, ten more minutes, that's up to you. You can really feel free to go if you are hungry or whatever, really. Meanwhile, I will start speaking. You can leave the room. What is the training procedure for training? I think whatever you prefer. Uh, I don't know if back propagation would work, I don't know. But basically, it's a supervised problem. You want your output layer to have exactly the same activation that your input layer. The only thing is that since you produce a bottleneck here, it's supervised, supervised, because you force the output to be the same as the input. It's kind of supervised, unsupervised. It is kind of unsupervised, because your data is well, the training is supervised, but what you think here actually doesn't tell you anything about labels or anything. So your cost function is the difference between inputs and outputs. Yes. And you can calculate the same. Yes. And because you produce this bottleneck, and they call it unsupervised. You do a forward propagation and you backward, and they call it unsupervised. And they want basically the same thing. Yeah, but here you know the you know. That's the question that the, the Boltzmann machines use this contrastive divergence of training. 
I asked what kind of training they use here. So also machines are not using gradient descent for Okay. Planning seminar. <laughs> okay. okay, maybe we can discuss yeah. on this later. So, about applications in neuroscience, huge applications. Uh, first of all, neurons really process things and code things in a population level manner. Uh, single neurons uh, make only sense in respect to what other neurons do. They really neurons talk in order to process information. So, neural code, if anything, it uh, involves a coordination of responses across neurons. Single neurons, if you look at one neuron one by one, your chances to understand how that area is processing input are close to zero. Okay. You really have to look at uh, your data set from a full uh, point of view. Okay. But again, if you record too many neurons, you have you need a missionary reaction to make sense of that coordination of neurons. Uh, For example, if I record three neurons and the activation of neuron one goes like this. Start decreasing and then increasing and decreasing again. Neuron 2 does this, neuron 3 does that. I mainly present some input and I observe these neurons dynamics. I don't know, I will start interpreting, oh, maybe here, yeah, the first neuron, whatever, it decreases because it's tired and then it goes up. I will start interpreting this thing one by one. What happens? If I plot these traces in three dimensions, I will see that the trajectory is actually like this. These three curves, if I put it in one single space in three dimensions, it's like this. And here I will see that actually this line lives in a plane. So actually the extrinsic dimension is 3, but the intrinsic dimension is 2. And if now in that plane I plot S1 and S2, the coordinates in the plane where the data lives actually obtain these activations. I see that actually that there must be some neuronal variable that grows with time and another that oscillates, which is very different from what I would have interpreted. Okay, so this, the mixing, allows me to interpret, okay, there must be some neuromodulation, whatever, that grows, and there must be some brain oscillation down there. And this, I will be able only to see this after I did the mesonality reduction, not before. Uh, and the second big thing is visualization. Visualization is extremely important. Um, because it really allows to generate new hypotheses and interpreting the data. In this task, there was a monkey that has to, basically had to do some movement with the hand. And at the same time, they were recording the motor cortex. So here is his hand movements when he was instructed to reach different locations with the arm. And at the same time that they record how the arm moves, they record neurons in motor cortex. They took 100 neurons. They looked one by one. But they saw this thing. Here is the, when the monkey is instructed to move in a certain direction. I don't know. If you look at 108 of these graphs, I don't know what you will extract. What they did, okay, they actually created this neuronal trajectory. They, uh, after the missionality reduction, PCA, something like that. And then they start saying, okay, if we try different trials of the same movement, actually, what they observe is that the, the points kind of, they started before the very different points, but once the monkey knew which movement he has to do, but before he did it, he was just instructed, okay, move right. Okay, but before he did it, they observed that actually the points corresponding to different trials, different repetitions, kind of started to get closer and closer. And some sort of saying, okay, in this region, 
of the neuronal space actually it really represents the pre-activation of the motor command okay and the closer it was to here the faster was the reaction time so it really to visualize this data in this way it really allows you to make new predictions and new hypotheses and they could interpret many other things okay so the last two slides future world dimensionality reactions highly appreciated in neuroscience but most of the data is still analyzed classically neuron by neuron but there is a lot of work to be done to analyze very interesting data sets that have not been looked from the perspective of dimensionality reduction or manifold learning. I have many ideas about diffusion maps that I would like to use, and many improvements on representational geometry analysis that has to do with uh, using other notions of distances or embedding uh, to understand how the brain represents information. I'm sorry for the excess of time. Mm -hmm. okay. I will find it here. No. <laughs> <laughs>